When Blanche's banquet beau exhibits behaviors that are below her standards, she has a decision to make. No, not what band to hire. No, not what venue to get. No, not even what caterer to use. She has to decide if her highfalutin ways are more important than having a partner that is caring, helpful, and devastatingly good-looking. Let's find out if Blanche gets over her judgments or if she makes a huge mistake in today's episode, Diamond in the Rough. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. The term diamond in the rough, meaning someone who has a great personality and heart but lacks class and manners, was first in the book A Wife for a Month, written by John Fletcher in 1624. LiteraryDevices.net tells us the origin was the phrase, she is very honest and will be as hard to cut as a rough diamond. Of course, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I can only think of the Cave of Wonders from Aladdin. On this sunny Miami day, we enter the house to find Sophia having a heated phone call with... Well, someone that doesn't realize the Sicilian gecko they're talking to. Negotiating a price, Sophia will only go as high as 50. Okay, fine, 60 bucks. When a floral dress with a white cardigan wearing Sophia hangs up to find white collared shirt, white pants, and purple sweater with a lighter purple bib panel Dorothy walking up on her, coming in from the lanai. She looks concerned given the tone of her mother's voice, but when she's told Sophia has found her a date for the upcoming banquet, it's then she learns the haggling was the price for her. She doesn't need her mother auctioning her off to the cheapest man. She'll get her own date, even if she has to pay $100. Moving on from her mother shopping for dates, they get to work on the invitations for said hospital charity banquet. Also helping to plan is Rose, who has just come into the living room from the kitchen in a light floral dress and pink blazer. Holding her full stomach, she's sampled from 10 caterers, but with no luck. They may not have found food yet, but she did learn the layered dessert of cake, ice cream, and browned meringue, a baked Alaska, can be made anywhere. Even more shocking, Dorothy offers Mars bars, which is like a Snickers without peanuts or a Three Musketeers with caramel. A Mars bar is made on Earth, but still at a distance, in England, since the 1930s. Entering the front door is Blanche, in a colorful flower skirt and teal oversized sweater and a long string of pearls that only draws the eye to the non-existent bosom. If you haven't seen the entire series, I promise I'm not a jerk. That's a Blanche quote, so stay tuned. Anyway, she is delighted with herself. She has managed to get the banquet booked at the Versailles Room at the hotel. Dorothy is shocked by the news. That's a major cost of which the committee does not have the budget for. Girls, is this your first time dealing with Blanche? You know she has hustled and finagled some sort of deal. 
which she has, she promised in exchange for the room her sister would sing at the owner's piano bar. No, not her sister Virginia, and no, not Charmaine. Her other sister, Miss Susan Anton. Model, dancer, producer, singer, actress, and delusional Blanche's imaginary sister due to comparable hotness, Susan Anton, is still working to this day. After receiving a Golden Globe nomination, thanks to her appearance in, of all things, 1979's Golden Girl, the story of which seems totally bonkers. Robert Culp, the sportscaster. He's paid to ask questions. It's just I have this little problem with uh, this nonsense about the mystery, super, jogger, blonde. And introducing Susan Anton, America's most talked about, read about, dreamt about new personality. In a spectacular motion picture debut, Golden Girl, she'll win your heart, even when you know her secret. In case you didn't catch all of that, yeah, she is created by a Nazi doctor who locks her away until she's ready to be the perfect Olympian. Susan then went on to have roles in Cannonball Run 2 with Mr. Burt Reynolds, was on Night Court, Baywatch, Love Boat, Super Password, and Murder, She Wrote. She also had a top 10 country single. In what has to be one of the most Golden Girls layered clips, here is Susan Anton singing Huey Lewis's Heart of Rock and Roll during a Jerry Lewis telethon. Neon lights and the pretty, pretty girls all dress so scantily. When they play the music, hard rock music, they like it with a lot of fun. Of course, the man didn't believe her. How could anyone as stunning as Blanche be related to such a peasant? Besides her looks, Blanche's moxie was appreciated. Moxie means a spirit of determination, verve, or vigor, not another V-word she likes showing off. With the room covered, the ladies get back to their to-do list. As always, I appreciate that these partially retired older women are shown to be living some real housewives' lives. They don't just sit around waiting for life to pass, they live life planning events, hosting fundraisers, they have no problem taking on the responsibilities. So now they need to find a caterer and a band. Sure, Rose was supposed to do that, but Dorothy's worried if she does, they'll end up with the Hans Gerflagenblurber yodelers. Rose defiantly points out to Dorothy that that would never happen, because that band broke up, unlike the Sonja von Kugel tuba band, which might end up getting booked. With a ring of the doorbell, Rose gets up to answer it. On the other side is the one, the only, Jake Smolens from VIP Catering. Somehow making 70s fashion look real good, Jake has on jeans, the whitest collared, lowest buttoned maroon shirt, and a dark blue jacket. Oh, Jake Smolens, known in real life as Canadian actor Donnelly Rhodes. Besides being eternally hunky, Donnelly even sang in his appearances on the Chisholms and the Da Vinci Inquest. Before passing away in 2018 at the age of 80, Donnelly had a whopping 163 credits to his name. Some of his more notable appearances were on Battlestar Galactica, Mission Impossible, Police Story, Wonder Woman, Soap, Facts of Life, Cheers, X-Files, and Murder, She Wrote. He, he's a very charming actor. Very charming. I, Do you know him from anything? I recognize him from Battlestar Galactica. I, I was too young to watch that show when it was actually on, but I think I recognize him from 
artwork or something at the Universal Studios oh, tram ride right. or something like that when I was a kid. He's really great in the role, and it's um, it's a it's a really well rounded character. Mm-hmm. And there's, it has he has a real they they have a real arc together. Yeah, he's charming and maybe has a little bit of like f boy energy. <laughs> like, oh yeah, he's been around the world. He knows how to get it if he wants it. He's he's been in a lot of ports. Yes, <laughs> but he also isn't a jerk about it and he isn't disrespectful and he's not yeah you know he just likes to wear jeans and be chill and you know drink chowder (laughs) with jake's formal introduction and handsome looks rose can't help but give a full rose nyland st olaf minnesota introduction of herself Turning to introduce Jake to the girls, Dorothy barely acknowledges him as Blanche stands up, formally and sternly introducing herself as the head of the banquet's committee. Seeking credentials as to why he should get the job, Jake lays it out. He was a naval cook for 25 years. He's been running his catering business for five. If needed, he could make Rose's favorite, chipped beef, for 1,500 seamen, or a chateaubrain for two, which is named after a French author and is a piece of meat of which I have never heard. That, of course, wasn't what Blanche was inquiring about. She wants to know if he's married. When she learns that he's single, she is delighted. When hearing he wants to go by Jake, the still nearby and still smitten Rose shares she once had an uncle named Jake. Turned out he was the uncle that exposed himself at the family events. But who doesn't have one of those in the family tree? Finally getting her chance to speak with him, Dorothy arises, throwing Rose aside before grabbing Jake by the hand and delicately walking across the room to the couch. While at first she has a demure, delicate voice when inquiring about the cost, her tone changes when responding to his question of if they're looking for something formal or casual, Dorothy makes it clear their only criteria is that it's cheap. Well, Jake finds this level of honesty admirable, and Dorothy finds Jake's barely tamed chest to be the same. Oh boy, the sexual harassment, Dorothy. Pulling her head out of the daydream of getting lost in Jake's chest curlies, she clarifies, they want cheap. Well, for a low cost, he could make a Yankee pot roast consisting of beef, ribs, potatoes, tomatoes, onions, and carrots, and that could be accompanied with his wild green salad and his famous clam chowder thrown in for free. As nice as all of that sounds, they'll of course need to sample what he has to offer. To do so, Blanche invites herself to Jake's house, but he has a better idea. There's a diner, it's on the boardwalk, and it's very romantic. They actually use his recipes, so they could just eat there to get an idea of what would whet their appetite. A date is set. 8 p.m. tomorrow, he'll pick her up and they'll go out to dinner. As he slips out the front door like a thief in the night, the ladies, nearly breathless from his appearance, whisper, a nice to meet you, and what a hunk, once he's gone. As Blanche leans on the door, fiddling with her hair, pleased with her accomplishment, she tells the girls to eat their hearts out. That phrase has been around since the Iliad as a metaphor for experiencing extreme grief. As Blanche basically tells her friends, tough luck, Dorothy fights back. Hello, you just swooped in and took over the conversation with Jake the hot man, not even allowing space should one of us have been interested. Oh, Blanche considered all of that and still used all of her skills to win him over and get the date. And all she has to say for her actions? Damn, I'm good. It's a little after 8 p.m. the following evening, and we're treated to a new location, a restaurant, which from the outside signage reading restaurant in Bavarian-inspired font and lattice-covered windows doesn't look like it's on the boardwalk or that it's very romantic. But let's see what's inside. 
With decorative fish, helms, beach glass, and lanterns, the inside isn't much more romantic, unless you're a fisherman or a pirate. Well, that is if you're Blanche. I think if Coco and I were to sit in these low, uncomfortable wooden chairs among the candlelight and french fries, we'd still find a way to have a romantic time. Certainly. We'd probably do like, um, uh, well, you know, we'd order a bunch of little food and then you'd watch me eat it because it probably all has meat in it. (laughs) And I could give you a review of the restaurant. And I'd cheer you on and go, yay, you enjoy that shrimp scampi. Probably like peanuts and throwing the shells on the floor. That is fun. (laughs) I love that. Sawdust. Or we'll, we'll pretend we're like uh, grown-up goonies. Well, we are. We are grown-up goonies. <laughs> <laughs> Entering the place to see what Jake finds romantic, Blanche stops in the entryway, a fishing net providing the backdrop to her leopard print dress. For her, the Popeye-appropriate theme just isn't doing it. I'm surprised his outfit is doing it for her. While she's dressed up, he somehow looks less formal than he did at the house, in jeans and a dad-on-the-weekend-inspired bright blue teal polo and beige windbreaker jacket, he looks like he could do some damage to some crab legs or a lobster tail. Waiting for the table, the waiter, played by Mike Muscat, approaches his friend Jake and seats the couple at the finest table in the middle of the room. Mike continues working, adding to his 77 credits. In addition to being a writer, stunt, and cameraman, he's acted in Falcon Crest, The Young and the Restless, Jake and the Fat Man, Terminator 2, Forever Young, Last Action Hero, CSI, Shameless, Weeds, and of course, La La. Besides my personal issue with being stuck at a table in the middle of a restaurant, Blanche, now having sat in the uncomfortable chair and touched the unclean-feeling table, isn't sure she's at the top spot. For Jake, the fact that she didn't get a splinter when touching the table means that it is the best place. Jake orders for both of them by saying, the usual, which makes me wonder, how often is he going to eat the food he literally could make at home? Maybe they give it to him for free? Or, as he's ordering for two, how often does he take a pretty lady out to eat, ordering the usual? I'm on to you, Jake. Getting more comfortable with each other now that they've spoken for a total of eight minutes, the flirtation resumes. The pair are clearly very attracted to one another. Jake even going so far as to say in all of his years in the Navy, traveling the world, dating women in every port. Well, he doesn't specifically say that, but we can infer. He's never met a woman like Blanche. And for Blanche and all of her years of dating every Navy man that came into her port, she's never met a man like Jake. Only sailors use condoms, baby. Not in the 90s, Austin. Well, they should, those filthy beggars. They go from port to port. A man who got drunk as a teen and got a tattoo of a nose on his bicep. As he laughs the ink off, Blanche scoffs. If there is a tattoo artist in the Portland area that would like to do a tattoo of a nose on my arm, or maybe we could do Betty White's nose, then it's a rose nose, I'm down for that. I think I'd probably get Sophia's nose. Oh, that's it's a little cutie button. She does have a little cutie button. Yeah, we should do that. With the chowder served in a beige Ikea bowl with no placemats, napkins, and silverware strewn upon the undoubtedly sticky table, Blanche excitedly starts to try it. Before she can, Jake has one little tip to enjoy it to the fullest. You need to warm up your lips with a passionate, seated kiss. It's also better to have your first kiss with someone before you have a mouthful of seafood chowder. 
Disagree. (laughs) As Blanche smiles from ear to ear, finally seeing the romance of the place, her smile soon fades to disgust when she realizes Jake is holding his bowl of soup as though he will be drinking it, not using a spoon. Back at the house, having a day of equal romance and disgust is Rose and Dorothy, who are auditioning performers for the banquet. As they sit through an accordionist playing, well, I'm not sure the name of the song, but he played with all of his passion and energy. Wrapping up the first song, he's ready to move on to the next, one by Huey Lewis and the News. What is there to say about the kings of 80s adult contemporary rock and roll, Huey Lewis and the News? Not only did they have the huge album Sports with such hits as The Heart of Rock and Roll, Heart and Soul, and I Want a New Drug, it was that song that actually gave them their massive career boost by being affiliated with the Back to the Future franchise. Fun fact via Wikipedia. When they were filming the original Ghostbusters, the producers were hoping to get Huey Lewis involved in the music post-production. So throughout filming, they used I Want a New Drug as background music for The Vibe. When Huey and the News were too busy because of the success from sports, the dailies were sent to Ray Parker Jr., the namesake of one of my favorite cats I had once, and the writer of the Ghostbusters theme. The use of the new drug melody led to a lawsuit and the producers giving Huey the opportunity with Back to the Future. So hooray plagiarism. No, uh, hooray blessings in disguise. Now have a listen and listen real close and see if you can hear the similarities. pretty blatant <laughs> and it's a it's having those mashed on top of each other is it, just a great sound i really enjoyed it yeah i, I mean they work well because they're the same song it's just it just sounds great it was like yeah spooky lewis in the news <laughs> oh i'm sorry spooky lewis in the booze yeah <laughs> Of course, Dorothy isn't interested, and shockingly, neither is Rose. Pushing back, Mr. Hinckley offers to skip to his grand finale, wherein he holds sparklers while playing Hey, Look Me Over, with just his feet. As impressive as that all may be, Dorothy isn't interested, so she pretends to be upset that it just isn't enough of a performance since he can't do all of that and smoke a cigarette at the same time. Playing Mr. Hinckley is Vince Tranquina. Besides being a co-writer on the new Yogi Bear show, he also appeared in Hill Street Blues, The Wizard, and Freddy's Nightmares, and is apparently a talented accordionist. In 1960, Lucille Ball made her Broadway debut singing Hey Look Me Over, a song the creators had a bit of a concern about because they had the world's most famous female comedian breaking into musicals, and she wasn't exactly known for her singing. But don't pass the plate, folks. Don't pass the cup. I figure whenever you're down and out, the only way is up. Our beautiful Broadway babe, B even performed the song at the Kennedy Center. Up and I'll be up like a rosebud, high on a vine. A don't thumb your nose, but take a tip from mine. I'm a little bit short of the elbow room, but let me get me some. And look out, world, here I Showing Mr. Hinckley the door, Dorothy in khakis, another colored shirt with a reddish-purplish sweater vest, which I didn't notice until today's viewing, has like four buttons kind of right at the crotch or like lower belly area. 
It's not good. Well, Dorothy has a suggestion for the morose rose. In white pants, a button-down shirt that looks like the wallpaper of a church lobby, and a very light seafoam green cardigan, who is panicking as they've auditioned a dozen performers, but they still haven't booked anyone. No worries, Dorothy has a plan. Let's go have some cheesecake. Once in the kitchen, the girls find Sophia in a yellow house dress who is getting some water after getting dehydrated from licking stamps and envelopes for the invitations. Rose has a helpful suggestion. Use a sponge. Now, it could be a misunderstanding, sarcasm, or plain old smart-assness that forces Sophia to respond to Rose's attempt at helping by saying, No, I'd rather use a glass. Rose, of course, had meant for the sponge to be used for the envelopes, the very idea of doing so making my toenails curl into my body. Using a sponge? Yes. To, to wet uh, an envelope? Yes. <laughs> you don't like sponges? I hate sponges. Oh, I didn't know that. And I... Oof. I don't use them. I, I, mean, really I don't use them issue. for like cleaning and stuff. Like I'll use it once yeah. and then it's out of here. Oh, yeah. It's just bacteria it's party. So gross. It's way more texture for me than bacteria. Well, unless it starts to stink. Don't even get me near a stinky sponge. That's in my top three worst smells. Burn the house down. But the idea, I can't even watch people like on old movies roll a cigarette because they just run it across their tongue like one time. I'm a licker, like a, if I'm doing an envelope, but people that just go zoop, zoop. Ooh, no, thank you. A dry tongue on an envelope and then a sponge. And then people just drag the sponge and it's not wet enough. Well, I think they... I guess so. I, I I don't know why I was imagining that the sponge is just sitting there and you're like wetting your finger or something, but that makes no sense. That's what cashiers do. That is what cashiers do, which is also gross because then you get little um, dried up. You got pruny fingers. <laughs> hey man, they get you coming and going. I Look, got you can't do I got texture issues. You I have do. sensitivities. I don't like sponges. <laughs> In a revolving door moment that looks like Blanche and Sophia are working on a quick change performance, as Sophia leaves, the door swings to reveal Blanche in a dark periwinkle skirt and blouse combo. She looks mighty fancy, which was on purpose. She has, or more like had, a date with Jake, but he's late. Rose tells her to look on the bright side. He'll have an excuse, and even if he doesn't, he's hot. Who cares? It's not that easy for Blanche. She and Jake have been dating for a few weeks at this point, and it's been great. But there are some red flags, concerns, deal breakers. He eats with his hands. He puts his napkin in his collar. He wears white after Labor Day. You know, the things that are super important when looking for a partner. Dorothy finds Blanche's criticisms just that. Too critical. But for Blanche, a stunningly beautiful woman such as herself can't help but be picky. With an announcement from Sophia at the kitchen door, we learn that Jake has arrived, mostly in one piece. With his tan button-up open to reveal his gray undershirt and his hands covered in muck, Jake is totally unpresentable to Blanche or anyone that might see them out at dinner. Appalled, Blanche cannot believe her boyfriend would pull over to the side of the road to help a woman whose car had broken down. Yeah, what a jerk. Even though Jake was just being a nice guy, Blanche is confused why he didn't just get a professional to do it. Someone, as Rose suggests, like Andy Grantinelli. Starting with owning racing teams in the 1940s, Andy found such success he was able to become the CEO of the car products company, STP. After purchasing Tune-Up Masters in the 70s, he became a household presence, rocking a trench coat, which, to be frank, what? in a way you would imagine a trench coat would look on, say, the body of Winnie the Pooh. For my kind of tune-up at one guaranteed low price, 
You can trust Tune-Up Masters, or my name isn't Andy Granatelli. With just a look from Dorothy, Rose shuts herself up. After washing his hands, Jake kneels at Blanche's side, begging for her forgiveness while promising to make it up to her by going for a romantic beach picnic under the stars. With a deep, focused voice, Dorothy, not Jake's girlfriend, offers forgiveness. Realizing the crossed line, Dorothy changes her tune to, uh, I mean, Blanche should forgive you. After tantruming and playing games for attention and apologies, Blanche agrees to go on the picnic. When Jake leaves the kitchen, Blanche can only look back at the girls with what can only be described as not really an O-face, but perhaps an oh-my-god foreplay face. Left with only their cheesecake, tears, and horniness, the girls can't believe how lucky Blanche is to have such a great man. After Dorothy's bemoaning, Sophia offers her daughter comfort. Of course you could find a man as good as that. With an outreached hand and tears of appreciation, Dorothy makes a huge mistake. She asks her mother if she means it. Of course she doesn't, but how could she say anything different? She's her mother. Weeks have passed and the date of the banquet is creeping up on the girls. For Dorothy, in tan pants, a white turtleneck, and muted coral jacket, her biggest concern is that no one from the guest list with the last name from G to O has RSVP'd the invite, leaving her worried Sophia didn't get all of them sent out. But Sophia, on the couch in a pastel-striped flannel shirt and matching baby blue pants and jacket, is certain she had them in a shoebox and took them to the post office the week prior. That is, unless she actually mailed her shoes, implying she thought she had a box full of individual invites, but somehow mailed one single item without noticing the difference. This news sends Dorothy's frustration to a 10 as she squawks at her mother for making such a mistake. Yeah, she's only in her 80s and worked all week to get the envelopes out. Have some compassion, Dorothy. To cancel out the bad news about the invites, Rose has great news about the band. She's hired one. It's the all-female jazz band, The Great Pretenders. You know I love some wordplay, so the multi-level cleverness of this name is making me give the Blanche face. You've got inspiration from the Chrissy Hind-fronted Pretenders, which had already had some hits by then, the other pretending, as in the illusion of drag, but we'll get to more of that later, and of course, there was the classic Platters song, The Great Pretender. I pretend too much, I'm lonely, but no. With the band set, Rose is finally excited for the banquet. She wishes she could be as excited for Dorothy, who is stuck going with Harvey as her date. A Harvey we've yet to meet, but can only assume is no Jake. Feeling defensive, Dorothy points out that Rose's date isn't anything to write home about. He doesn't even need to rent a suit. He owns the blue one he's famous for. When Blanche comes in from the hallway wearing dark teal pants and a shirt with a matching blouse adorned by a flowy jacket of dark blue and accents of the teal, she's once again frustratingly asking if Jake has called as he is once again late for a date. Seems to me the president of the committee should maybe be more focused on the newly hired band and missing invitations, but who am I to comment? Staying on the topic of Jake, but trying to minimize Blanche's annoyance, Rose asks if, since Jake's company is the caterer, he'll be able to go as her date or if he'll be working the event. She doesn't know or care. She's going with Hunter McCoy, raising the eyebrows of everyone in the room. This is shocking news for the girls, who can't understand why he wouldn't be her date since they'll both be there. Blanche doesn't see the issue. The banquet is a black tie event. 
Jake lives in blue jeans. It's just not his scene. So he can focus on the food, and she'll just focus on the fun. Drazing. This whole ordeal reminds Rose of a woman in St. Olaf. Saving everyone the pain of a story Rose was about to tell, Sophia throws her arms up, begging everyone to stay quiet and not ask what woman. Rose knows she's been defeated, so she takes a seat. It's Dorothy's turn to crack the Blanche code. Who cares about pants when this guy cares deeply about you? But Blanche is no dummy. Neither is Jake. They both realize between their commonalities and class, there isn't a lot of room for growth within the relationship. Standing firm in her decision, Blanche heads to the door. Sure, it's her late date. And it is. And once again, looking like a daddy, I mean dad, Jake has his jeans, t-shirt, and jacket combo going on. Rushing into the house, Ellen... I'm nine months pregnant and tired as hell. I'm not going to wash your shirt. You want a clean shirt? Leave it on and go jump in the river. (laughs) I mean, Jake grabs Blanche by the waist before laying a passionate kiss on her lips. He realizes they aren't alone and gives a coy greeting. When Jake asks to be alone with Blanche and she asks if he can wait, he begs. He must speak with her now. As he well knows, she's flexible. So with a look over her shoulder from Jake, the girls excuse themselves to the kitchen. Of course, Sophia and Rose need some coaxing as they don't want to miss all the excitement. But Dorothy helps them up and out. Before Jake can ask his very important question, Blanche cuts him off. She knows what he wants to ask, if she'll be his date to the banquet. But as he must know, they're just too different. They've had fun and all. Their time together has been wonderful. But they're just running out of steam. Turns out Miss Smarty Pants Hoity Toity was wrong about Jake's question. It wasn't if she would be his date, it was if she would be his wife. Sound the alarms, we've got another proposal. Not proposing, are you? Yeah, pal, I am. Well, think about it, you know? Then, with an awkward silence and uncomfortable stares, we cut to commercial. It's nighttime. Rose is at the table, unable to sleep. Joining her in robe solidarity is Dorothy, who also can't sleep. For Rose, the stress of the banquet is causing nightmares. Picture it. She's at the banquet. Everyone looks great. Then, Charlton Heston walks in, dressed as Moses, his character from the Ten Commandments. And like his character with the Red Sea, he tries to part the dessert table. When he can't accomplish it, he hijacks the party, takes the guests to the nearest JCPenney, where they can all stand around laughing at the larger-sized underwear. To the best of my memory, which isn't saying much, the girls haven't yet mentioned Charlton Heston, an old Hollywood actor turned gun nut who, all I can think about when I hear his name is that his name is Charlton. You know how famous people, you always hear their full name or a character name, so you don't really realize, like, that dude's name is Chevy. Or one venti latte for Merrill. Charlton. According to thebump.com, it means a free peasant's settlement. But enough about that. Before I spiraled on his name, and before he was known as the you'll pry my gun from my cold dead hands guy, Charlton was one of the biggest film stars of the 1960s, appearing in such films as Julius Caesar, The Omega Man, The Call of the Wild, Tombstone, and Wayne's World 2. He was best known for his roles in Ben-Hur, George in the Planet of the Apes, Rose's dream inspiration Moses from the Ten Commandments, and for the 2022 set, what is now an apparent documentary, Soylent Green. You tell everybody, listen to me, Hatcher, you gotta tell them, Soylent Green is people! We 
In the 1960s, he was working with fellow celebrities in supporting a gun control measure. He picketed outside segregated establishments in the South. He supported civil rights and even marched on Washington. By the 80s, he must have been consuming too much Soylent Green because he lost his damn mind. He supported Reagan, became the president of the NRA, threw a tantrum about his Second Amendment because Ice-T expressed his First Amendment right by releasing the song Cop Killer. He said the U.S. was violent because it was too ethnic, and he went on to say, quote, The Constitution was handed down to guide us by a bunch of wise old dead white guys who invented our country. Now some flinch when I say that. Why? It's true. They were white guys. So were most of the guys that died in Lincoln's name opposing slavery in the 1860s. So why should I be ashamed of white guys? Why is Hispanic pride or black pride a good thing when white pride conjures shaven heads and white hoods? Why was the Million Man March on Washington celebrated by many as progress while the Promise Keepers March on Washington was greeted with suspicion and ridicule? I'll tell you why. Cultural warfare. Go to hell. The very average department store JCPenney has been around since 1902. It has recently filed bankruptcy and was sold, so it's on its last leg. No matter how many holiday sales they scream at us about. JCPenney. Well, one, it's fun when you go there because everything is on sale to a degree that you're like, it's like, oh, you saved $4 million on this. <laughs> yeah, it's like Kohl's. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, we actually owe you 20 bucks for buying all this. <laughs> but what I loved about JCPenney when I was a teenager and growing up into being like in my 30s, I needed big and tall sized clothing. Mm. Uh, not because I was super tall. <laughs> and that was really the only place that I could find things that were like, reasonable That's for me true. to wear because otherwise big and tall stuff in the 90s and up into the 2000s was rough yeah. i mean everything was plaid everything was like 12 feet long if you put it on you know like a polo would just go to my knees the, the sleeves were everything was just bad but jay-z penny kind of they did it right kind of kind of yeah they helped me out so thank you kudos to jc penny for being inclusive and and rips Rips to J.C. Penny. You've 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 done me right for a long time. Joining the non-sleepers is Sophia. When Dorothy asks, "Oh, you can't sleep either," she receives an answer with excessive sarcasm, worthy of her silly question. Oh no, I'm sleeping great, so well actually. I thought I'd see how it would go in the sink. Of course, it's the banquet that has all three ladies up and worried. And they'd all appreciate it if Blanche could show the same level of concern and join them in their restlessness. Rose is understanding. Sometimes people sleep more when stressed as an escape mechanism. I know for myself of fight, flight, freeze, or faint, faint is my preferred. When I used to do restraints in mental health facilities, there were actually times that I would have to jolt myself awake as I started to doze off. But it wasn't like a natural sleep, just an escape. Same for Sophia's Sal. This, of course, usually only took place during foreplay. Wishing her mother would show some respect for her dead father, she reminds him, he's dead. Oh, Sophia knows, and he'd been dead a lot longer than Dorothy thought. As much as they wish their friend was feeling better, Dorothy is struggling to find any empathy for Blanche. She's made this bed by throwing away a perfectly good man that, according to her, had no other faults than his manners. Finally joining the gang in a peach pajama getup that looks formal enough to be worn to the banquet, Blanche appears. Dorothy doesn't hesitate to inform her not only were they just talking about her, but it was about how stupid she is. She doesn't have to be told. She knows, and she's sick about it, and she can't sleep because of it. But there's nothing she can do. 
If she calls him, he'll only try to get back together. In a rare four-people-at-the-table moment, we see Blanche has grabbed the chair from the little work area to join the other three. Desperate to understand, Rose needs Blanche to explain why she doesn't want to be with someone so wonderful. Once again, she explains that they are just different, incompatible. Dorothy translate, he's not good enough for you. But Blanche fights back. That's not it. It's that those differences would lead to resentment, and because she cares so much for him, she can't let those become the feelings they have for each other. In a plot whoopsie, Sophia then says she and Sal met through arranged marriage. This is shocking information for Dorothy and us. What happened to him being the last man standing when she booted Muffin from the village, huh? Yeah, that was just episodes ago, wasn't it? That, that, I, happened? that might have been last week. That's... Or well, maybe the week before. Pretty glaring, guys. <laughs> Ladies, ever, whoever did that. I mean, you never know. They could have filmed them out of order or something. Yeah, that's but also, she's very colorful. So Yes, uh, the colorful personality. Yes. yes. <laughs> this could be today's version of how they got together. In this version of their meet cute, there were 16 single people in their village. So the eight boys and eight girls were lined up by height, and boom, that was your betrothed. Lucky for Sophia, she stood on a rock, making her closer to Sal's height. Otherwise, she would have ended up with Luigi the pig boy. <laughs> Shifting gears to what I'd want in my next partner, Rose shares that if she were to be with someone, she would want the opposite of Charlie. Even though she loved him so, she wouldn't want to try to copy what they had. Besides, finding someone impulsive and romantic would be thrilling. Her dream date with the dream man? Getting in a convertible, going to the airport, flying to his French villa, blindfolding the orchestra, and dancing until the sun comes up. I found it odd to say you would blindfold the orchestra. Without a conductor and sheet music, the job would be a lot harder. Well, I wasn't the only one to feel that that line stuck out. Der Spatzel on LiveJournal felt the same thing when watching Sunset Boulevard, and here's what he discovered. The phrase blindfold the orchestra turned up as a reference in two other films, Some Like It Hot and The Lost Weekend. Now here's the curious thing. All three of these films were written by Billy Wilder, and two of the films, Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot, feature the line during a tango. I have deduced without any further help from the internets that this must have been a pet phrase of Wilder's. So perhaps this line with the girls was just a nod to Some Like It Hot or Billy Wilder. Fun. Just when it seems Rose has gone full Grace Kelly in her fantasy, she brings it back to St. Olaf, saying that then they would enjoy a cup of hot cocoa with little mallows. I don't know why this gets such flack from the girls. I find it not only romantic and cozy, but what more do you need after a date like that? For Dorothy, the cocoa is just too much, calling Rose a trollop. Originating from the German word trull, meaning sex worker, trollop means a woman who has many casual sexual encounters, and apparently someone who likes cocoa. So call me a trollop. I'm going to start calling you that. Ooh, Go over please. here, you little trollop. Ooh. <gasps> right? Oh. I know. Now it's Dorothy's turn. Her ideal mate would be someone to grow old with. Not in the way we can all do, even alone, as Rose so eloquently pointed out. What Dorothy means is someone unlike Stan, someone who wants to grow old. They want to watch sunsets and pass time on the porch, enjoying nothing more than one another's company. When it's time for Blanche to share, she surprisingly isn't sure what she wants in a partner. Even with all of the dates, men, and engagements she's had, she hasn't stopped to take the time to figure herself out so she can figure out what to look for in a partner. Once Dorothy really pushes, Blanche is firm about two things. She doesn't know what she wants, but
but she knows it isn't Jake. She'll just have to wait for her prince to come. When Dorothy asks what all of that meant, Sophia, who was only paying attention to part of it, thinks Blanche is off to sleep with, oh boy, that little black guy prince. Which technically isn't an oh boy, but there's something about how it's said. You don't need to like describe, describe. prince. <laughs> also, who do you think would out-sexy the other, prince or Blanche? Oh. For I, both of them, it is like the foundation of their lives. I mean, I got it. And for, I mean... I don't really like Prince, but I would have to go with Prince. He yeah. just has this. If he was any larger of a person, it would be too much mm. sexuality. Yeah, it would be intimidating, I think. I mean, I think it might like destroy the world. Finally, it is the night of the banquet. Going to the same hall slash hotel as the dinner from the flu episode, we enter to find a beautiful gathering full of beautiful people, like Rose in her light blue ruffled dress and drop-waisted light pink lace blouse that it's kind of like over the top of the dress, and her blue tuxed bow. Interrupting the conversation, Dorothy, in a stunning navy and sequin dress with lots of extra fabric making an X across the body that I can only assume is there in lieu of pockets or to catch food that falls, is concerned about the band. Dorothy's not really worried or even upset about it. She just doesn't want the people at the party to notice and get all bigoty. Before they can even promise to keep it quiet, a stunning Sophia, in one of my favorite outfits of hers and maybe on the show as an entirety, which is a shiny gold dress with a gold cardigan and an over-the-shoulder purse instead of her usual. And she starts hollering across the room, asking if anyone saw the queens on stage. Hopefully she's meaning that like drag queens and not as a slur. Now, Sophia's dress, you actually, you had like a visceral reaction to it. It, it gave me a chill through my whole body. And it, it, yeah, seeing that one, that was just, a, it's a stunner. Yeah. It's such a great look. I don't, I don't even like gold, like almost completely don't ever like it in any situation but that dress then the president of the banquet and queen of the universe blanche appears in what looks to be a 75 pound maroon velvet dress that's when we finally meet her date hunter mccoy played by howard witt whose career ran from 1972 to 2010 some of the more notable of his 46 credits were in programs like Law & Order, St. Elsewhere, Murder, She Wrote, Remington Steel, Taxi, Hill Street Blues, Days of Our Lives, Rhoda, Kojak, and a Disney movie I have never heard of, but whose title is already in Coco and Mai's vernacular, Mr. Boogity. Keep an eye out for the Boogity Man. What Boogity Man? Boogity Boogity! It's spirited family fun, Mr. Boogity. I'd move. Blanche's outfit on on first appearance made me think instantly of Disney's animated Beauty and the Beast. I don't know why it reminded me of that, but it did. Of Rem Robbie Benson's performance in Beauty and the Beast. Wait, so you thought her dress looked like it just it just looked like it was a beast costume oh yeah that's what it reminded me of it would be yeah, like when she... just big and her hair was huge actually her hair was more like uh ron perlman's beauty yes. and the beast actually she looked more like ron perlman's beauty and the beast <laughs> is what i'm thinking i did it yeah that's what it is it's like that medieval shoulder yeah just you know like, that it looked, big it rounded looked sewer used like the beasts yeah Coco, would you like to tell the people what a boogity is in our household? 
it's like a little prank scare or a, or a little joke spooky. Yeah, a little hide, a little hide and spook. Yeah, of some sort. And then and we it, say boogity. Boogity. <laughs> we don't scream that stuff. No. You just say it very boogity. You just uh, maybe walk down the hall before Coco, and so you step to the side of the hallway, and then when he walks past you, you just go boogity. <laughs> and then he I go, drops ah! things and screams and falls over. <laughs> it's it's delightful. I highly recommend. It never ends. <laughs> that sounded really sad, like I'm torturing you. <laughs> She won't stop. Help me, please. Hunter, in his tuxedo, is clearly sophisticated as he goes on and on about the piquant or sharp taste of the food. He's glad Blanche worked so closely with such a talented caterer. That's when Sophia adds in the detail of their working relationship being one of little to no clothing. Ah, uh, yes, I believe this is the first time of one of my favorite running gags of the series. Sophia runs her mouth, Dorothy covers it with a hand, and then gives some far-fetched excuse regarding Sophia's behavior. This time, it was that Sophia witnessed the Hindenburg disaster. The Hindenburg was an airship, or Zeppelin. Making its way from Germany, this Hindenburg was landing at a New Jersey naval station on May 6, 1937. While landing, it mysteriously caught fire. It's most famous for the news coverage showing the event. As disastrous as it appeared on screen, of the 97 passengers and crew on board, only 34 lost their lives, and there was only one fatality of those watching from the ground. I would have thought for sure that there were no survivors. And not to lessen the horror of the event or the trauma for the witnesses of such terror, but did you know, oh boy, fact here, that on the tail fins of the Hindenburg there were swastikas? Because the Germans were like, these airships are going to be our thing. So, I'll just leave that at that. Oh, the humanity! After shooing Sophia away, the girls start looking for Jake to thank him for the wonderful food. Blanche assumes he's in the kitchen, but Rose spots him at the dessert table, wearing his tux, looking a hubba hubba handsome. Sending Hunter to get a drink, Blanche is nearly breathless after seeing Jake again, especially in his fancy tux. And she knows now, or at least her loins do, that she has made a Miss Jake. She shouldn't care about his clothing or table manners. She loves him. Hunter doesn't take long to get that drink, and as Blanche walks away, Rose is on the spot, making the excuse that Blanche is going to the dessert table to rub caramel on her face as it helps her powder stay on. Dorothy backs her up, and they continue the conversation. When Blanche finds Jake and pretends to be surprised by his presence, he can't help but tell her he's been watching her all night. Not wanting to waste any more time, she doesn't apologize, just tells him she's realized their differences aren't insurmountable, and she's willing to work through them. Before she can pour her heart out anymore, Jake stops her. Hey, you're great, but you weren't wrong. We are different, and it's not about manners or looks. It's about being loved for who you are. Jake loves himself as he is, and what he wants from his dream partner is someone that loves him for who he is. Being with Blanche has been a highlight of his life, but he knows that if, after only a few weeks, she feels like they're too different, that will always be an issue between them. And with that, he walks out of the banquet and out of our, I mean, out of Blanche's life. Too bad she didn't let Rose or Dorothy have a chance with him. I think his mellow easiness would have complimented Dorothy's intensity. Coco, who do you think Jake could have been most compatible with? Boy, that's tough. I think it would have been good. <laughs> I think it would have been good with Dorothy, but probably the same thing. She needs someone that can like really rein her in. Yeah, I think I think 
Jake and Rose would get along quite well because they're both sort of like want to go do things like that. Yeah. I think, you know, Jake is like a rugged guy and she grew up in Yeah, Minnesota, that's true. She's got so, those farm hands. Yeah, she's used to that sort of um, environment and recreation. So I think they would do well together. And they both, well, at least Rose has a weird, everything, everything related to food, I feel like, has some sort of odd story or something. Oh, that's true. So for that reason, Rose. With a quiver in her voice, Blanche tells the girls what happened. She isn't shocked he left. She's shocked she let herself screw up something that had such potential. As much as Blanche thinks she's confused, she's quickly informed by an ultimate 80s pink dress-wearing trumpet player, suggesting she take a gander at the horn section if she wants some real confusion. Is that a joke or an oh boy? If that beautiful musician's face looks familiar, you are right. In only his second role as an actor, the musician is played by a man who needs no introduction, but I'll still provide it. It is the one, the only, Glenn Shaddix. After his first role in The Postman Always Rings Twice, then dragging it up with the girls, he went on to steal our hearts as a jerk in Beetlejuice, Father Ripper in Heathers, and in single appearances on shows like Empty Nest, Seinfeld, and Roseanne. His best-known voice work would be as the mayor in Nightmare Before Christmas, but he also contributed to Ah! Real Monsters, Bobby's World, Cow and Chicken, and Teen Titans. Sadly, he passed away at only 58 years old, but he had lived his life, overcoming and surviving through attempts to take his own life and conversion therapy. He even got to be the host of the intro video for one of my favorite places on Earth, Space Mountain. All that glitters is not gold, as Jean-Claude Parabola proves with his new heat-reflecting sundress. This knocked them dead on the runway, and also doubled as a disco ball at the star-studded gala that followed. The banquet is over, as is Blanche and Jake's relationship. She can't sleep. This time, it isn't the stress of planning keeping her up, and it isn't necessarily the loss of Jake. Per usual, it's all about her, and she's upset at the realization that she's getting older. The pool of wonderful men is getting smaller by the day, and she's just thrown one away. Complaining about her own mistakes, calling herself names, though she's made this heartbroken bed and she has to lie in it, Blanche is either processing the ordeal or seeking attention. Either way, Dorothy's a good friend, and she puts a stop to Blanche's whining. You're beautiful. You have a full life ahead of you, and you'll be meeting plenty of men. You'll never be alone. As an appreciative Blanche feels relief and comfort, she kisses her friend on the cheek, smiles, thanks her, and goes to bed, hopefully to finally get some sleep. Using Blanche's words against her, Dorothy now realizes, Damn, I'm good. When it comes to Blanche's type, it turns out, more than anything, she's a classist. While the moral of today's episode is to not judge a book by its cover and to not let your own conceptions get in the way of possible happiness, I'm not sure what the right or wrong answer is when it comes to Blanche and Jake. Jake is right. He deserves to be loved for who he is, not what he could be changed into. But Blanche is right, too. If she doesn't feel comfortable with Jake's behaviors or would rather live a life of hiring people to do work for her, they might not be compatible. In the same vein, Dorothy and Rose shouldn't try to force their friend to ignore her gut just because the guy is a dreamboat. For years, the Golden Girls community has pined for Jake, wishing Blanche hadn't been so stubborn or judgmental. But she should be commended. She saw the path they were on, one leading towards resentment and frustration, and she cared too much for Jake and herself to let them waste their time like that. And maybe that is really the moral of the story. It ain't gonna worry me for long. It ain't gonna worry me for long. I'll, I'll get, get up, up in the morning, morning and I'll still be singing my song. <laughs> 
no matter how delicious the caterer may be, uh, sorry, the caterer's food may be, if it's not good for you, you've got to walk away. But make sure you're doing it for better reasons than shabby clothes. You don't want to live your life regretting a Miss Jake of your own. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk all things cheating with Son-in-Law Dearest. Well, you could do closer. It was just the angle, I think. Oh. 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 Hangs up to find white-collared shirt, white pants, and purple swearing. Swearing? Purple swear, purple swear. Oh, farts isn't a swear. <laughs> they might. Buh. Crikey! <laughs> oh no, it's a lawnmower. But I'm watching. <laughs> I'm keeping my eyes out for the, the Jake. To hear the long zip of overalls. Overalls. Yeah. Zoop. <laughs> it's not bees. <laughs> it's Uncle Jake's yep. overalls. Nose. What if we get all four noses and then we could say it's a, we asked for a bunch of roses <laughs> and they gave us a bunch of noses. <laughs> but it's their noses. In a vase with uh, stems. Or just like in a jar with filled with like formaldehyde. Fun fact via Wikipedia. Am I saying that weird? Wiki. You got all messed up with that cat info. I know. It's so interesting. You had a cat named Ray Parker Jr.? Yeah purplish sweater vest which i didn't notice in today's i'm sorry for your loss of speech (laughs) (laughs) for dorothy in tan pants and a white turtleneck and a muted cordal 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 pastel striped flannel shirt and matching baby boop baby boo well not to spoil for anyone that hasn't seen the episode but hopefully you've seen the episode the great pretenders meaning what the band is pretending to be you know, women. <laughs> are, you, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> what? what happened? <laughs> I changed like an entire paragraph. Oh, okay. And just went off the rails. <laughs> I, yeah. It's, like, it's a weird performance. What's happening Thank here? You. Yep. The wind is making me crazy. Um, I don't think he was buried with a gun, but he did sleep with an 1873 Winchester rifle. There's nothing easier to fire from bed (laughs) than a lever action (laughs) rifle from 140 years ago. He was not allowed to be buried with the gun because of state laws. Good. (laughs) Didn't even get into his cold, dead hands. Yeah, they had to pry it. was pride no prying needed they're like okay unless he died with it in his hand oh my god wait did they, they didn't say but did, maybe. he didn't die with he didn't like die Let's with say one he in his did hand. he definitely and did they had to pry it out of his hands. definitely they like super glued it to his hands <laughs> what a what a eulogy what a remembrance <laughs> we got your gun bitch <laughs> we got it he's really good in the omega man yeah that was the original version of i am legend oh yeah that's right Starring Hitch. <laughs> Kevin James? That's right. <laughs> I am Blart. <laughs> Ooh, I don't like that. That sounds like you're sick. Welcome to the show. Hey! Hey! Oh, hey. Paul Blart. Ten-year veteran. 
think? What are you trained to do? Nothing. What the hell are you doing out here, Fred? Corporate sent me here to check up on you and your co-workers. Random selection, no need to get too nervous. No. What the hell are you doing out here, Fred? Confusing, right? How did you get out of here? I believe in magic! Fred, if you're real, you better tell me right now! Yeah! If you're real, you better tell me right now! You're pushing it. Damn it, Fred! <gasps> Damn it! Nobody wins with a headbutt. Roger that. I know for me, out of fight, flight, fight, or free, 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 I know for me, of fight, flight, fight. Wait. I put it twice. You know what? It is upsetting and I hate it. Thank yeah. you. Don't you get it, man? Don't you get it? The guy who's always singing in the bathtub. The guy who's uh, on a motorcycle with a frilly everything on. <laughs> Fun fact, did you know Prince's actual name is Prince? No. It is. That's cool. Yeah. He well, I think it also might be, I think that's part of why he was um, considered so sexy by so many people is because he has that smaller stature. So it's not intimidating. It's not like, oh, he wants to, you know, because there are other people that sing about that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, that sounds intense or like, you know, you want it. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good exactly. girl. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's a jam. Did the beast solve crime? Did he fight crime? Like what did the beast do? He just hung out in that He was sewer. a prince. But wasn't he wasn't a prince there either? He I was believe. Just... I mean, he lived in a sewer. Wow. So probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, a good boogity to you. That's interesting. All right. Fun fact. Yeah. Whenever I'm reminded of that clip, I think I don't know why. Oh, the huge manatee. Is that from something? No, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just think it. Is it because the um, airship looked like a manatee a little bit? I believe it's just that those words sound similar. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister. Both of you just shut up and let go of me!